Hello and welcome to this podcast on delivering pulmonary rehabilitation in the face of social and health inequalities. The Pulmonary Rehabilitation Assembly hosted a scientific symposium at this year's virtual conference on health equality, and I'm joined by one of the speakers, Dr. Pat Camp. Dr. Camp is an Associate Professor at the Department of Physical Therapy, University of British Columbia, Canada, and the Programme Chair for the Pulmonary Rehabilitation Assembly. Welcome, Dr. Camp. I'm delighted to have the opportunity to record this podcast with you, as I know that health equality is a topic that concerns you greatly. Thank you. Dr. Camp, in your presentation at the Scientific Symposium, you commented that although there have been a plethora of studies investigating the efficacy of pulmonary rehabilitation in people with COPD, the studies were a repetition of similar interventions in similar groups of people. I wonder if you could explain your thought processes. Yes, um, and thanks very much for the invitation to come on the podcast. So what I was thinking about when I was um, talking about, um, you know, differences in, in terms of representation and different pulmonary rehab studies, of course, studies are conducted in different countries. So by nature, there's differences in the groups of people studied. But what isn't typically reported and, and possibly likely not captured is the representation of people in terms of, say, their primary language or their socioeconomic status or their health literacy, or if they belong to an underrepresented or racialized group, for example. Um, you know, and even though it's not such an issue now, past studies didn't always include women. Um, and even now, most of those studies are reported in terms of binary outcomes, you know, male or female. So we don't really capture gender in terms of non-binary or transgender people. So I would say we don't really have a good appreciation of the diversity of people studied in past uh, studies of pulmonary rehabilitation. I wonder also what you think of the, the studies that have been done in pulmonary rehab, like I said, tend to have involved people with COPD, but we know there are multiple chronic respiratory diseases. And so when we talk about health equality, we usually think of characteristics or traits like gender or socioeconomic status, but disease category, I think is also something that we may need to consider. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, most of the studies um, have been done with people with COPD. And of course, there is a lot of things that can be transferred to other patient populations. But I think it wasn't long before we were hearing some interesting work around, say, a rehab for people with interstitial lung disease and some of the qualitative research um, that was done that really helped to identify that there was a lot of educational topics that weren't that relevant for um, patients with other health conditions, other res chronic respiratory conditions. And I think, you know, a lot of programs certainly adapted um, and were doing what they can and made, and made sure that they were offering topics and strategies that were relevant for the patients. So there was still an individualization of rehab for many patients. But in terms of how the research reflected that, it, it certainly has taken some time to to catch up. And, you know, there are other um, populations that aren't necessarily in our current rehab programs, like patients with lung cancer. Of course, now patients with um, who've had COVID may end up um, being in programs. And I think 
this exploration about what's relevant and what's necessary for different patient populations will just continue. I think that's a really interesting point. Thank you. And also, despite the numerous studies involving people with COPD, there's a bias in the literature towards people with so-called classic COPD. So that's tobacco-related, generally elderly men in high-income countries, in contrast to COPD caused by biomass, and that tends to affect younger non-smoking women. And I wonder if you could just elucidate on what the difference is in how these different types of COPD present, please. Yeah, so it is challenging to think about different types of COPD based on different exposures, you know, because we know that there are different phenotypes of COPD, even with the supposed common exposure of cigarette smoke. You know, there are layers of exposure to this disease, starting with the genetics and epigenetics and exposures encountered in utero, and then as a baby and child with developing lungs. And then as adults, all of which those different exposures of life can be in addition to cigarette smoking. And even the components and how people uh, smoke cigarettes can be quite different from person to person. And all of that is only captured in our metric of pack years. So even within cigarette smoking, we can have a lot of different layers of exposure. And then if you consider people that have been exposed to biomass smoke, that's also very diverse. There's really different types of biomass and how they're used in different parts of the world um, is different. Uh, they have different climates, different levels of ventilation. All of that has an impact on the exposures that people have. So it hasn't really coalesced into a unique COPD phenotype related to biomass. There may be some indication that there may, it may result in more of an airway remodeling kind of a phenotype than an emphysema phenotype. But the sample sizes um, where that's been explored are quite small and it's really challenging to make those comparisons because oftentimes biomass smoking or biomass exposure occurs in a certain um, ethnic group compared to maybe a cigarette um, smoke exposures, which may occur again in a different group. So it is really challenging to tease out um, if a specific phenotype occurs. And even if we just kind of slightly continue that difference in COPD type, um, I just want to explore in relation to the developing world. So it's more likely in the developing world that people will have COPD related to biomass compared to tobacco related COPD. And how do you think pulmonary rehab programs in this part of the world may differ or should indeed differ from those in the developed world, given this need to cater for potentially a more diverse uh, COPD exposure population? Well, I think that, um, again, something like biomass, that may occur for women more than men, and cigarette smoking may occur more for men than for women. So regardless of where in the world you are. So I think that that's where this concept of intersectionality occurs, where you may have certain groups that, that have different exposures, that even if they're from the same community, who they are in terms of their, their gender and their roles that they play and the different um, exposures that they have may result in a different expression of lung disease. 
And so I think people with COPD will be cared for in pulmonary rehab programs in a sense similarly everywhere. And by that, I mean individualized programs of care based on an individualized assessment. And I think of that in terms of function. And so if um, there's a tendency potentially for more women in a community to have more biomass um, exposure and potentially have more of uh, an airway component, maybe more with more say chronic bronchitis features, then there may be an emphasis around being able to um, care for your lungs in terms of secretion removal and make sure that that part is emphasized uh, or maybe being aware about reducing risk factors to exposures and having an appreciation that for many women, biomass exposure is part of their roles in life. And so we can't just make global recommendations for changing for risk factors, but hopefully our programs can be individualized um, to be able to uh, understand the risks that people have and, and how they can make those changes. So I think that, you know, if you have frequent exacerbations as that being your phenotype, or if you're under or overweight or require supplemental oxygen, you know, those are, those are things that are often based on your assessment. So what your phenotype is might not be as important as to what your needs are. Um, I think too, though, what has to potentially change is how we deliver um, rehab when we think about new, uh, new patient populations that are coming to us. So if we do end up with more women exposed to biomass smoke exposure and have, um, have evidence of COPD, we might not be able to provide our traditional pulmonary rehab programs, which in Canada have often occurred you know, during working hours um, with an, an, you know, of a retired, more affluent uh, community that can come when we want them to come. Uh, but instead, more recognition that if we have more younger women who have responsibilities in the home, we need to design programs that meet their needs. And so it may be less about phenotype and more about patient populations and, and what they need in order to be able to get care. It's an interesting point you raise, and I just wanted to bring in a point that Dr. Francis Early, one of the speakers at the scientific symposium earlier on in the year, said regarding differences in gender. So amongst uh, women, COPD tends to be underdiagnosed and, and undertreated. What do you think that the reasons for this difference is? So I, I hope that some of those gaps are reducing, but some of the work that um, was done, even a paper done by Anna Day in Canada a number of years ago, um, looked at some of the, the reasons for this. And she explored um, at the level of the diagnosis. In her work, they gave hypothetical scenarios to family physicians and the Risks were the same, the symptoms were the same. The only differences between scenarios were whether the, the hypothetical patient was a man or a woman. And so more times for men, the diagnosis was COPD in this hypothetical scenario. And for women, it was asthma. So even with the same smoking exposure, there appeared to be this lens that this was a man's disease. And so COPD diagnosis was more likely to happen for men. 
whereas the asthma was more likely to be given to the woman. I'm hoping that with more and more emphasis and more research and more understanding that, um, that women have by far caught up, the smoking exposures of the 60s um, have certainly resulted in more women with COPD. I hope that now this isn't the case of there being issues at the level of diagnosis. I think that when it comes time to getting care, we have to have an appreciation for the roles that women have in life. And so uh, many times, this is more anecdotally, that many times um, female patients would talk to me about the roles that they had as caregiver for their husbands. And so their husbands also had chronic conditions and needed their care. And so that prevented um, some of the women from coming to pulmonary rehab because they had responsibilities at home. If we're gonna see more and more COPD in younger women, which is certainly what we've seen across the board that the average age um, for COPD, um, certainly I've seen has come down. I think we're going to see more and more women in caregiving roles or with responsibilities around the house and, and in jobs that it makes it difficult for them to, in our example of pulmonary rehab, to attend our programs. So it's really a multifaceted problem and I'm sure we'll have to come up with multifaceted solutions. Mm -hmm. The social determinants of health are well documented, but perhaps in the pulmonary rehabilitation community, it's only something that we're beginning to tackle. Could you describe some of the most common problems that people with chronic lung disease face? So I'm not sure if I can say which are the most common, but I will comment on some important ones in my opinion. First, I really don't think that we have an appreciation of health literacy in our programs and how extremely complex the chronic disease management of chronic lung disease is compared to other conditions. We seem to have a pretty low bar of acceptance, I think, with regards to the ability to get the most out of, say, inhaled medications. How well do our patients understand how to take their inhaled medications? How often is their technique really perfected? You know, if I was on a blood thinner and I reported to you that I dropped about a third of my pills on the floor every time, you know, I went to take them in a given week, what would your reaction be? You know, you would be looking for strategies to make sure that I had the medication that I was prescribed. And yet, you know, I think we expect a lot of our patients in terms of their ability to understand and demonstrate complex instructions regarding inhalers. You know, and if you don't have the health literacy, which is of course related to how well you read, but also comprehend and understand and be able to take what you read and translate it into a motor skill. And then not to mention the fact that we have different inhalers for different patients, all of which have slightly different requirements in terms of the speed of your inhalation or how you turn or set or charge the device. Then we add in all of these other things, lung irritants, detecting exacerbations, launching an action plan, coordinating your physical activity, thinking about energy conservation, you know, and doing all of that in the context of reduced health literacy, I think is really almost impossible. And yet I don't think we really expressly address this in pulmonary rehab. You know, in Canada, I'm also concerned about the underrepresentation of several population groups that are present in our society, in our rehab programs. For example, people of different ethnic backgrounds or language groups or residency status. Um, this is likely for many reasons. 
including the conversations that happen between the patient and their primary care provider about pulmonary rehab. Does the provider know that pulmonary rehab exists in the community? Do they think that that program would help this specific patient from a particular underrepresented group? Does the, does the patient believe that this program will be welcoming, will have the potential to help them, will be a good use of their time and energy? You know, I live in a very diverse um, city, Vancouver, but I would say that our program participants are, are not necessarily representative of the people that live here. And when I talk to physicians, referring physicians who have groups from, uh, who have patient populations from um, other countries, they don't refer because they don't believe that their patient is necessarily going to get um, what they need, whether through language or, or other um, issues related to the program. So I think that in terms of different groups and um, whether it's health literacy or English or um, whether the program is culturally safe, and is reflective of the values of the different people. I think some of these really end up with, pro with people that are not able to access pulmonary rehab. One of the uh, common occurrences or increasingly common occurrences in the UK at least is the involvement in pulmonary rehab graduates in the, the design and development of pulmonary rehab programs. And uh, we in our uh, particular centre have found it really, really useful. And although it may not be the answer to all of the problems that you've outlined, I think it would definitely help um, help elucidate and, and, and manage some of the issues. Absolutely. And I think to spend time thinking about who is represented in those advisory groups, you know, if the people that typically come forward to join the groups are those that are uh, well-spoken, comfortable with language, uh, reflect or are, are, you know, look like the people that run the programs in all the different ways, then I think we risk sort of perpetuating the same problems. But if, there, if there's a really genuine effort to include people and have them um, take on the responsibility, but the authority to be able to make change in the programs and not, not just advisory, but actually almost like the co-researchers, these are like the co-program developers, then I think it's a fantastic idea and, and does have some real potential to make changes. That's a really important point. Thank you. Um, you did a survey of pulmonary rehabilitation services in Canada a few years ago, and I wonder if you could outline some of the issues you identified regarding health inequalities. So, as I mentioned in the ATS presentation, you know, we can talk about who's missing, but the reality is, you know, almost all patients are missing that, uh, that need the program we found that less than 1% of patients with COPD have access to programs in Canada. Now, I realize that, of course, not every patient needs pulmonary rehab, but really, I don't think there's a positive spin you can put on 1%. You can really only go up from there. So the biggest inequity is the fact that, you know, this is a proven intervention for patients, and it just does not have the same acceptability among the funders and providers and patients themselves compared to other chronic conditions. So that is an enormous issue. Um, I've mentioned some of the other issues just talking with today. We didn't collect data on a lot of those. Um, in, in 
Canada, there does tend to be a real rural urban difference in terms of access. You know, Canada is the second largest country and most of our population is certainly um, south along the Canada-US border, but still we do have um, many tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people that are living outside of urban areas. And some provinces have really worked hard to reduce this and they've used telehealth and other initiatives to spread access to rural areas. But in many provinces, this hasn't happened at all. And we know that the higher proportion of smokers are in rural areas compared to urban areas. And so there does need to be programs um, closer to where people live. Um, again, our work and that of others have spoken to inequities in program design and delivery. I do think that we need to pay attention to the quality of programs to, to meet these issues and also just the quality of programs in general. Um, we have to have programs that are of higher quality, I think. And this really needs to happen at the level of initial entry-level training we don't really have multidisciplinary entry-level training in enough, in enough places in, in Canada and I think elsewhere in the world. There have to be opportunities for ongoing professional development. You know, there's a course here and there that you can take, but for the most part, most countries don't have um, an opportunity for people to get training in pulmonary rehab uh, in all aspects of pulmonary rehab, not just the education, but actually exercise prescription, you know, testing and training. So programs really have to be designed and, to and delivered to meet minimum criteria. They need steady funding, they need all of that commitment. And the health professionals themselves in the program need to be committed to ongoing evaluation and improvement. You know, we have a lot of inequities between different types of rehab. Stroke rehab tends to be better funded, pulmonary rehab not. And so that means that there's a general inequity of what chronic condition you get makes a difference in terms of what kind of rehab you're gonna have access to. And so you end up with some programs and some patient populations stigmatized in a sense that the funders and healthcare professionals and society has decided that certain kinds of conditions, even if they're brought on by the same risks or similar risks, ends up in that you're going to get care for this one and you're going to get this many sessions and it's going to be paid for. And if you have this one, you're going to get fewer sessions or it's not going to be paid for. It's not even available at all. And this is in the context of similar prevalence. And so it's not like it's, a, well, something's really rare and something's very prevalent. No, these are all highly prevalent problems. So I think all of these things reinforce inequities. How, how pulmonary rehab is viewed, how it's trained, both uh, in, initially and in an ongoing way, how it's funded. Uh, I think that all of these things result in this 1% in Canada and, and similar levels as, elsewhere. And we really do need to, to raise the profile of pulmonary rehab and address this sort of have and have not problem that we have in rehabilitation. Dr. Camp, you, you outlined some quite stark um, messages there. And one of the, the challenges for pulmonary rehab services is how they recognize and address health inequalities. 
So I wonder if you could expand on that, touching on how we could resolve some of the problems that you've raised, i.e. the problem with funding, but also the the day-to-day logistics of the programmes, please. Sure. So, wow. (laughs) Where to begin? At every level, any any level, a programme can begin. I think for a programme to be able to ask themselves, who is missing from my patient population compared to my community population and why? If you live in a diverse community, but you're not seeing those people in the programs, what can you do to be able to make your program more accessible? Who is missing from your healthcare team? Now, granted a program can't always have hiring decisions, but this can is a message I think that needs to go um, throughout all levels of healthcare. If you live in a diverse community, and those people are not reflected in your healthcare team, even uh, something as simple as language can't be uh, addressed. But I think that if you live in a community and you come into a healthcare setting and you see people from your community in some way reflected in who's caring for you, we know that that has an enormous impact in how patients view accessing resources. So look at how your program is delivered and think about who may be disadvantaged in terms of access or in their ability to gain their highest potential and what are the barriers that they they face and can there be things that you can address um, related to that. The next thing I think is that programs really do need to start being critical about the quality of their own program. In order to do that, you have to both measure outcomes well and audit regularly and be willing to cast a critical eye on yourself. And I know of programs where they don't really measure outcomes, let alone evaluate them to see how they're doing. And so, you know, those sort of things for some programs seem sort of very basic. You know, of course, everybody measures outcomes, but I think we'd all be surprised that there's a lot of people that are going on sort of testimonials and, and oh, well, my patients, I never heard anything back. So I, I'm sure they got better, um, that kind of an approach. So I find that sometimes clinicians can get offended when it's suggested there's room for improvement. But I would really encourage programs to put their ego aside and really put a critical eye on each component. You don't have to feel overwhelmed, just tackle one issue at a time. If you don't currently... Uh, measure health status, then is there a simple tool that you can use? Like as an example, the St. George's Respiratory Questionnaire, the COPD assessment test. Um, If you're not currently doing a six minute walk test, well, this is a very straightforward field test that can be done that really provides patients with some important feedback. And if you're gonna do those things, do them well. We have excellent guides available to us and they don't, they don't take an enormous amount of time to be able to do them well. Once you start doing outcomes measures, then you can start to learn a little bit more about how many of my patients in a program are achieving uh, a certain increase in percent or a minimal important difference. Uh, are we, are we actually seeing gains? I think when people start to evaluate their own data, they can be surprised at what they see, how many people are dropping out, how many people never show up for their initial appointment. All of these sort of things are little issues of quality that programs can address. And if they just tackle one thing at a time, it can make an enormous difference for the patients. 
And then your comment about having patients come on board, bringing a few of your graduates in and say, you know, we want to have a better appreciation for for the quality of the program. What sort of things do you feel that we should be including in terms of measurement or outcomes or, you know, what, what do patients want to want to see? And, and likely they're going to have people interested in things like health status or, um, or in walk tests or in, in symptom scores, but nevertheless, to have the engagement of people that have been in the programs is, is so important. So I think that if, if you spend a bit of time looking at who is and who is not coming to your programs and thinking about barriers to access, are there some things that you can do to try to improve um, your program from that perspective? And then if you're not measuring outcomes to figure out a way to do that, and if you are measuring them, make sure you're doing them well and start to look at what kind of impact are we having if I was to take the last 50 patients and look at the average increase in six minute walk test. Are we seeing improvements? Or are people sort of staying at the same spot? And if so, why is that? You know, these aren't formal, massive, expensive audits that need to be done. They can be done with simple arithmetic and just spending a little bit of time collecting information. But you can start to learn a lot about your program when you start to do that. And if there's a couple of programs, you can compare with others and start to compare your your results and see where you can make changes and do those things together. So I think that there are many things, small things that programs can do to start to address some of the inequities that we've talked about. They're really practical, accessible exercises and solutions. So thank you so much for that. And also this brings our podcast to a close. So I'd like to direct our listeners to the ATS 2020 Virtual Assembly. If you'd like to hear more about uh, health inequalities and pulmonary rehabilitation, the scientific symposium took place on the Saturday morning and its session B86, delivering pulmonary rehabilitation in the face of social and health inequalities. Dr. Camp, thank you so much for your time and for your insight. It's always so refreshing to to speak with you and listen to you talk. So thank you. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. And thank you all for listening. Bye-bye.